All right, so I want to begin by thinking about the verse that we just sang moments ago from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, because that's our feature song for this year's Advent. There's a line that says that Jesus was born to deliver his people. He was born a child and yet a king. That he was born to reign forever. And now thy gracious kingdom bring. In this verse, we see that this coming Messiah would be a child. And this child would be a king. And this child king would deliver his people and then reign over them forever. Luke chapter 1, our scripture reading today, tells us how Jesus is child yet king, man yet God. Today we are going to see, by going back to the first Sunday of Advent, to see that Jesus had to be both son of Eve and son of God to truly be the answer to all of our questions and the fulfillment of God's oldest promise. One of the greatest questions that humanity has struggled with is how it is that Jesus can be fully God and fully man. Even, I believe, well-intentioned Christians over church history has struggled through this and have come to some wild conclusions. Unlike Greek and Roman religion, Jesus is no demigod, where God came down to earth, found Mary, and then boom, there's Jesus, half God half man. Jesus is also not merely just some theophany, just God who appears for a little bit of time, does something, and this goes away. Nor is Jesus merely or only human. This right here, heritage, is what makes Christianity distinct from Judaism, both in the first century and even still today. Today's text answers how Jesus is both the son of Eve, and the son of God. So today, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at Mary's questions, Mary's perplexities. When Gabriel just shows up and just says, hey, through you, you know that old promise that your whole culture has been waiting for? It's coming true in and through you. So we're going to take a look at her questions, her reservations, her perplexities. Then we're going to take a look at our own questions and our own perplexities, and struggle through how is it that God can still fulfill his promises today? And then we're going to build an expectation that only God can do the impossible, that only God can do the supernatural, like breathing life into a barren womb and causing a virgin to give birth. That's today. Let's jump in on this third Sunday of Advent. Take a look at our proposition today. What I pray that God would just give you assurance in is this, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise for a king who will reign forever because he is the son of God and he is the son of David. So on the first Sunday of Advent, I shared the very first and oldest promise that God made to humanity that a son of Eve would come. You must remember, no matter how you spent Saturday night or what's going on this season of life, that God gave this promise to Eve at her lowest point of her life, her short life, but still the lowest point of her life, when she had failed, when she put herself first over God. God didn't come with wrath and a lightning bolt. He came with grace, and he came with promise. And the promise was this that a son would come from her, 
and Satan would bruise his heel, but then this son would have the ability to bruise Satan on the head. Meaning, the wound that Satan could do to this coming Messiah would be short-lived, but then this coming Messiah would deal the death blow to Satan. We saw in the first week this, this promise expanded through Genesis, right? This son of Eve, we then would find out, would be a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob. This means that this Messiah isn't American. He's not Western. He's Eastern. He's Jewish. This son, we learned, would also be the son of Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. Not the firstborn, but the fourthborn. And then we see through Judah that this son would be a king. He would be Shiloh. He would have a scepter, and he would have a rod. Let me share with you for a moment how we get from Judah to Messiah being king. David was the first true king of Israel. And ethnically, David was a son of Judah. David was a shepherd with a staff, with a rod, and a king with a scepter, as God promised to Judah before his dad passed away. However, David is not the fulfillment of these oldest of promises. He would simply be the conduit by which the promise would be fulfilled. But to David, and we're going to go there right now, God expanded on this original promise of a son of Eve who would be able to crush Satan. Let's take a look at this promise. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. And God tells David that when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In part, this promise is fulfilled through Solomon. Hey guys, remember the fall when we looked through Daniel? And we talked about eschatology and the promises of God. And I said there's two elements of it. There's a now to God's promises. And then a later. Solomon is the now. But he's not the later. Solomon, yes, built Jerusalem's temple. However, Solomon died. Solomon's kingdom destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, 6th century. Never rebuilt to its, its former glory. A second temple was built. Next to the original, I mean, the elders who were alive during that time, they wept because they're like, where's the grandeur? And this temple, the Romans, almost 2,000 years ago, came and destroyed. There's no temple. There is no Solomon's throne anymore. Therefore, Solomon is not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made for a son of David to reign on David's throne forever. Today, you're going to see that Jesus is the son of Solomon and the son of David. And before we begin, I got to give you some backstory for our text. See, Mary's story actually doesn't really begin with Mary. It begins with her older cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is married to a priest named Zacharias. They love and serve God. And they have served God for decades. But we learned that this couple were old. Now, those of you who are oldies, 
I need to constantly encourage you that as God was not finished with Zacharias and Elizabeth, God is not done with you. I've lamented some of your testimonies of churches that you were in, that the older you got, the less they put you in ministry. And they just kind of pushed you out the door. And we welcome you here, right? Because God was not done with Zacharias. In fact, one of the greatest promises will be fulfilled through an old couple. But then we also learn that this couple is barren. Now, one day, Zacharias, in his old age, is serving in Jerusalem's temple. And then, boom, Gabriel, the angel, comes to Zacharias and tells him, Hey, Zacharias, um, this time next year, you're going to have a son. You're name him John. Beautiful name, right? Strong name. John Gabriel tells Zacharias will bring great joy to his parents. And that's just normal, right? Babies bring great joy to their parents. However, the joy that this baby will bring to Zacharias and Elizabeth is a little different because God is going to use this baby boy to prepare a country for Messiah. The time has finally come for God to fulfill his oldest promise. And Zacharias and Elizabeth and John will have a part to play in this fulfillment. So Zacharias responds with perplexity and with doubt, just like you, just like me, just like Mary. And he's like, how can this be? Right? That's usually our first response to God's word. How can this work out? We are too old to have a child. We are barren, right? Excuse after excuse why God simply can't do his word in our lives. You're not alone. Neither am I. But Gabriel assures Zacharias, and then you know what he does to him next? He strikes him and mutes. For the rest of Elizabeth's pregnancy, he does not speak. He gestures. So Zacharias finishes his service in Jerusalem's temple. He goes home to Elizabeth in Judea, Zacharias and Elizabeth are physically intimate, and a child is conceived in their old age and in Elizabeth's barrenness. Elizabeth secludes herself from everybody for five months. You can imagine why, right? I am old. How can I be pregnant? Is this real? Will I lose the baby? Every, everything that may happen, every pain, every movement, you're wondering, is this real? How can it be? So she hides for five months. But I want to share really quick Elizabeth's response with you. And what we're going to see is that she praises God. And you have to think back to the first Sunday of Advent where I told you that your reason for living is not to be a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, a grandparent, and an income earner. You were created for so much more. You were created, as Psalm 13 told us, for hallelujah, for praise. Praise is your reason for living. Elizabeth exalts in God just like Hannah did last week, as Vernon shared with you. In fact, the language is very close to Hannah's prayer in Psalm 113. I want you to take a look at Luke 1, verse 24 to 25, so we can take a look at this unfold. So Luke says that after these days, Elizabeth's wife became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months. And here's what she said. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Hallelujah, right? In traditional Eastern cultures, 
Elizabeth's value was tied to her fertility. She was infertile. So you can imagine how she felt as a woman. And then God comes through at the end of her life, it seems, and reminds her that she has a place at his table and a purpose in his kingdom. Like Hannah, God has taken Elizabeth's shame away. This is what our God does. God redeems the needy and the lowly and the barren, and he gives them a place at his table and a purpose in his kingdom. Today's text, which we read moments ago, picks up six months after. Elizabeth is in month sixth of her pregnancy, and Gabriel, as messenger of God, shows up again, but now to her younger cousin, Mary. And let's begin with our first point. So in our first point, we're going to see that Mary's perplexed, and that's the topic of point one, is perplexity. Mary's perplexed at how God can fulfill his ultimate promise through her. Now, you need to think about two things that we learn in our scripture reading about Mary. The first thing that we see is that Mary is a virgin. You have to know this, and you have to be armed with how to respond to this. But liberal critics of the Bible will like to say that the word virgin means a young and unmarried woman only. That's what liberals say about this text. Liberal critics look at the Bible. Here's why. They look at the Bible with a faulty premise or with glasses on that jades everything they read. And the faulty premise is that there is a natural explanation for all things that happen on this planet. That's the very premise of science. And you test and test and test until you can figure some things out, draw some conclusions, and theory goes to truth. When you cannot acknowledge that we cannot figure it all out, when you cannot acknowledge the supernatural, you begin to come up with some crazy ideas. And this is one of them. The Greek word for virgin is parthenos. Now, for those of you who have traveled, or for those of you who are Greek mythology nuts like me, you know that the flagship city of Greece is Athens, right? Every Greek city-state had their own patron god or goddess that they worshipped. Corinth, for example, was Aphrodite. That was their cultic goddess. Athens was Athena. And atop the highest mount in Athens beholds a temple. That's what people did. We'd go to the highest point and build something to communicate with God. Just what people do across all different kinds of cultures. The Greeks did it too. And atop of the mount in Athens, they built a temple. And this temple is called the Parthenon. It's called the Parthenon because Athena is the virgin goddess. And what the Greeks mean is that she's not just young, that she's just unmarried, Athena was perpetually virgin, untouched by a man sexually. That's why it's called Parthenon. Luke and the gospel writers could have used any word, young and unmarried. There's Greek words for that. But they chose Parthenos to communicate the truth, historical truth, that Mary was untouched sexually. Now, you got a little something to say to people who like to say, the gospel writers didn't really mean virgin to be untouched sexually. Oh, yeah? 
Let's talk about this. All right. The second thing you need to see is that Luke tells us that Mary is engaged to Joseph, who is a son of David. Now, Mary is also a descendant of David, too. But this English word for engaged, and you know me. You know I love NASB, the 1996 version. It was redone in 2020. Not as good. Love the 1996, but I wish they would have used a different word here. They should have used the word betrothed. That's much closer. Engagement, we think of post-World War II dating that leads to engagement, that leads to marriage. And that's not what Jewish betrothal is. Jewish betrothal, two families came together, usually across a whole year. It is a year of feasting, a year of partying, a year of families coming together to learn each other, to exchange promises, to exchange securities. I mean, this is a big deal for two families to come together in Eastern cultures. And then betrothal ended with the consummation of betrothal through physical sexual contact. That's betrothal in first century Israel. During this long betrothal, Gabriel just pops into Mary with today's text. Remember, this is six months after and into Elizabeth's pregnancy. God has already taken away Elizabeth's shame by opening up her womb. And now let's see what Gabriel is going to say that God's going to do through Mary. Let's look at verses 30 and 31. The angel tells Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Two inexplicable, supernatural births. And Gabriel tells Mary this time she's going to conceive a son, and this son's name is going to be Jesus. Now in Greek, the name Jesus is actually Iesus. There's no J in Greek. It's trying to convey an old Hebrew name, Yeshua, which is actually closer to our English word, Joshua. Now, I've said this to you, you know this throughout the years. It's actually more consistent to call the Son of God Joshua or Yeshua than Jesus. But Yeshua means God saves, God delivers. And we can think of Moses' lieutenant, Joshua, as an example of this and how Jesus is the ultimate Joshua. Now take a look at verses 32 and 33. Gabriel continues and tells Mary about this child. He says that this child will be great. He'll be called Son of the Most High. There's one. And then the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This child, Jesus, Yeshua, will be great. He is great because he is both the Son of the Most High and the Son of David. As the Son of the Most High and as the Son of David, Yeshua is the only one who can reign forever. Something that David could not do, something that Solomon could not do, or any of the other sons of David. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, they all died. This son of David will live forever. Now, remember, this point's about perplexity, so let's get to it. Let's look at verse 34 to see her response. Mary hears all of this as a young Jewish woman. She says, 
How? How can this be? Since I am a virgin. Parthenos. This question reveals Mary's perplexity. She cannot see. She cannot understand. She cannot reconcile. Here's what God says. But this is my literal, physical, true circumstance. And don't you struggle with that too? God has said this, but this is the situation that I'm in. How are they reconciled? Mary's question, though, makes no sense if the liberal critic has the Bible right. Do you get that? That's another thing you should say to them when they say, there's no such thing as a virgin birth. Her response and her question makes no sense if she's just young, if she's just unmarried, which isn't true. They haven't done their homework. Because in first century Israel, when you initiated betrothal, you were married. It just was not consummated. That's why, though we're not getting to this text during this Advent series, when Gabriel appears to Joseph and tells him that Mary is pregnant, what does Joseph want to do? He wants to divorce her. Do you remember that? Which, once again, reinforces, in the eyes of Jewish law, Mary and Joseph are already married. There's waiting to the end of betrothal to consummate it through sexual union. Once again, it makes no sense if the liberal critics of the Bible have it right. But once again, they have the faulty premise. You've got to keep that in mind. When you don't believe in anything supernatural that can happen, you've got to come up with crazy ideas. All right. Let's see how Gabriel answered Mary's perplexity, because that's what this is all about. How can the Son of God and the Son of David be conceived in Mary's womb? Because Joseph, the Son of David, has not touched her yet. Verse 35. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And it's for this reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Gabriel gives two answers to Mary. One, the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary. This means that God the Spirit will be the superintendent of Jesus' conception and development in Mary's womb. And then he says that the power of the God Most High will overshadow Mary. Now, the Greek word for overshadow right here, and I'll say just because it comes in the English, it's the word episkiazo. It's where we get episcopalian, you know, the... Church of England around America, around the world, not in England. They're called Episcopal. And that's one of the terms that's used for a pastor. A pastor is an overseer, as God has charged me to make sure all of us are okay until I die or the Lord comes back. That's the charge of an Episcopal. The Holy Spirit is going to be the pastor, the overseer of Mary during this process. And the God Most High is going to oversee the process himself. And this evokes a powerful image. If you and I were Jewish, immersed in Jewish culture, we would know exactly what Gabriel is getting at here. Because it's directly related to how David speaks of his relationship to God throughout the Psalms. Specifically, there are four Psalms where David talks about God spreading out the shadow of his wings and just covering him. And that may be reminiscent of some gathers we've been through in the past, where I've literally grabbed someone's, Jesus is like, yep, you did it to me. 
grab someone's jacket to show you the overshadowing of God in the Old Testament. This is what God is going to do to Mary. He's going to outstretch the shadow of his wings over Mary. And the result is Mary will be pregnant with the Son of God and the Son of David. The shadow of God's wings was David's way of expressing protection, help, joy, loving kindness, and grace in God. God is going to put Mary in the shadow of his wings. As a daughter of David, she will experience God's protection and help and joy and refuge and loving kindness and grace. And this overshadowing work of God is how a virgin can give birth. That's the most logical way to explain it. And anything else is just supernatural. And we're okay with the supernatural as Christians. But before we move on, we have to ask this question. Why is God doing this to begin with? Why does the fulfillment of God's oldest promise from the beginning of Genesis, why does it have to be fulfilled through a virgin birth? Why? And here's the answer. If Jesus is only a son of Eve, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a son of Judah, a son of Joseph and Mary, then he is not the son of God. He is just another son of David. Like Solomon and Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, and Asa, and all those terrible kings that came from him too. If Jesus is the son of God, then he can conquer death then he has the power not just to hit Satan on the heel, but to hit him on the head. He has to be son of God. Jesus, as God's son, has existed eternally. It's one of the most mind-blowing things in Scripture as well. Though Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, this is the distinction, and a lot of Christians have gotten it wrong in the yesteryears. Though Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, he was not created in Mary's womb. He has always existed. And this makes Jesus' conception unlike any other conception. Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God. And this virgin birth is proof that this child is unlike any other because it's not the process and the byproduct of Mary's union with Joseph. But even more than that, the promise of this virgin-born son stretches back in this moment 700 years before Mary. There was a son of David who was struggling that a foreign power was going to come in and Israel would be no more. And God comes on in through Isaiah and gives a promise in Isaiah 7, in verse 14. I want you to take a look at it. It's beautiful. Through Isaiah... God says that the Lord himself will give this king a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We don't get this, once again, in Western American cultures because we're not traditional. But in ancient traditional cultures, a name is more than a name, right? Names reveal who you are, your identity. The focal point of this isn't to say literally that there's going to be the Messiah, his name is going to be Emmanuel. Who he is is tied to this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. 
This son will be the actual presence of God in our lives. Perplexing, isn't it? It's hard, isn't it? Can you see why Mary is struggling right now? All of this wrapped up now in her womb, and she's a virgin? It is hard to understand and make sense of God's word experientially. Can I get an amen? Right? We are, I'm not the only one that struggles. Mary's not the only one who struggles. Zacharias is not the only one who struggles. You struggle too. She is a virgin. Virgins naturally cannot give birth. There's no logical, natural explanation to this. And of course, this must prove that God superintends this all. The Holy Spirit will watch over Mary's womb. God the Father will spread his wings over her. Jesus will take on flesh inside Mary's womb. And the oldest promise of all, the promise to save us all, will be fulfilled through this young Jewish girl. He is God's son, David's son, and he will eternally reign over his people. Now, you too struggle and are often perplexed at how God can fulfill his promises to you. You look at God's word, and then you look at your life, and like Zacharias and Mary, you ask, how can this be? Gabriel's encouragement to Mary is still the way that you and I battle those perplexities today. And that is what we are going to struggle together as we get to our point of application. All right, so let's apply Mary's perplexity to us. Here's the point. You are to rely on God's future promises by remembering God's past faithfulness. That's it. Remember, when we do these points, we try to get as clearly for you as possible. You can look forward and, and trust that God's going to be faithful. He's going to fulfill his future promises when you look back. And that is why even still in a Western culture like ours that is antagonistic and atheistic to God, at this time of the year still, built into our calendar, we stop and look back to look forward. How can Mary and how can you today, on this third Sunday of Advent, rely on God's future word and promises? We need to stop today and look back. We need to look back to see how God has been faithful, how he's always been faithful. Because we are prone to forget. Remember, there's a reason why God chose a shepherd boy named David and why Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Because you and I are sheep. And we are easy to forget what our shepherd has done for us. Even secular Western culture has this maxim. They say something like this. An indication of future performance is past results. If you're in business, that's a maxim that you learn. You have all these formulas that you apply to be able to see, try to predict what's going to happen in the future based on what happens in the past. But how much truer of this maxim is of God? God opened Sarah's womb. God opened Rachel's womb. God opened Hannah's womb. God opened Elizabeth's womb. Is it a stretch of the imagination? No, no. Is it a stretch to believe that if God can cause a barren woman to have a child, that God can cause a virgin to give birth? So let's see how Gabriel walks her through this point. 
You trust in God's future promises by looking to the past. Let's get back to our text, verse 36 and 37. Gabriel says, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived, past tense, Asa in her old age, and she who was called, past tense, barren, is now in her sixth month. Conclusion and promise, nothing is impossible with God. To help Mary in her struggles to comprehend how God can fulfill these promises literally inside of her, Gabriel tells Mary of what God has already done. Mary knows her older cousin. She knows her age. She knows her barrenness. What she does not know presently is that Elizabeth was pregnant. Remember, she secluded herself for five months. As Gabriel tells Mary of God's past faithfulness, he brings in an expectation to her, and it still lingers still 2,000 years later. When we look at God's promises, and when we look at our circumstances, we must conclude, like Gabriel, that nothing is impossible with God. The God who can say, let there be light and there was light, the God who through Moses who can part the waters, the God who can protect Daniel in the lion's den, the God who can take barren women and breathe life into them can accomplish anything you think is impossible today. That's the promise of Advent. If God can bring an old and barren woman to give birth, God can surely fulfill this first promise, this ancient promise through Mary. What can our God not do? So Gabriel says, Mary, trust God will do this and look to your cousin Elizabeth. Now let's take a look at Mary's response. Huh. What a woman. What a woman. She's so young too. And still, what a woman. Mary says, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And Gabriel says, peace out. Job done. He's just a messenger, right? He's just a mailman. Look at Mary's response to God's promise. She looks at her circumstances. She looks at God's promises and says, may it be. May it be done. Come with me. I'm here. I am yours. This statement reveals what expectation does in our hearts. It looks back to see what God has already done. It struggles through current circumstances, and then it pushes forward. And that is still our model today. So Gabriel leaves. And you know what Mary does? <laughs> I don't know, like he just apparates? I don't know. But as soon as he's gone, Mary leaves and goes straight to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And I want you to see, just for a moment, what takes place when Elizabeth and Mary see each other for the first time. It's verses 42 and 45. Luke says that Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice. And here's what she said. Blessed are you among women. What a greeting. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. 
And blessed is she, blessed is Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God has spoken to her by the Lord. Mary, sorry, Elizabeth is six months, 24-ish weeks pregnant. John is inside her womb doing somersaults, right? Holy Spirit somersaults. Did you do that too? (laughs) That speaks so much to the value and the preciousness, the complexity, the beauty, the design of what's going on in a woman. It's tremendous. It's glorious. Elizabeth blesses Mary. Now, once again, at this point, only Mary knows what's going on with her. Just like, like Elizabeth's been hiding for five months. Like, this is fresh news to Mary. Only Mary knows what Gabriel's told her. Or maybe not. Who knows? Elizabeth doesn't know, just as Mary didn't know that Elizabeth was pregnant. But remember, the Holy Spirit is present in all of this. He is overseeing both of those pregnancies. I mean, the Holy Spirit was in the womb with John. That's how he leapt for joy. And Elizabeth says, Mary, your womb is blessed. Elizabeth says, Mary, you are the mother of my Lord. Do you see this? Elizabeth already called Mary mother. You cannot overlook this as a Christian trying to figure out what's going on with the sanctity of human life. And I have to get this thrown in here. I have to. 24 weeks, John already leaping in the womb. Elizabeth already calls Mary mama. Why? Because at the moment of conception, a man becomes a father and a woman becomes a mom. Amen? And you can be perplexed and struggle through it still because of culture and your flesh. That's okay. It's okay. This is a safe place for it. But it does not change the fact. Mary immediately left home to visit Elizabeth. And she is already pregnant. And she's already called mama. Is this hours? They live in the same kind of province. Is this a day later? And she's already called mother. And we pray that men and women today learn this truth, that at the moments of conception, you are a father and you are a mother. Elizabeth tells Mary that she is blessed because she heard God's word and believed it. How could Elizabeth know this? We know as the reader, Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, do with me whatever you will, God. We know this as the reader, Elizabeth. But Mary showing up is proof that she's acting on God's word. Mary was perplexed, yet she trusted. So what does this include? It means looking back to what God has already done. Elizabeth is proof. And this is the thing, not just for Mary, but for you still today. That's why we still read this. Elizabeth is proof of God's faithfulness to Mary and to God's faithfulness to you. This is how important the weak, the needy, and the barren are in the kingdom of God. She has a place at his table and a purpose in his kingdom. Now, after this, Mary prays one of the most important prayers of Scripture. It's called the Magnificat. 
We're not going to read all of it. I just want to give you, where is she? A little smackerel. Take a look at verse 46 to 47. After this, Mary prays, and she says, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The end of Mary's perplexity is praise. Do you get it? The end of Mary's perplexity is praise because you and I and Mary were created to praise God, to enjoy him forever. This woman will be used to fulfill God's most important promise, and Mary exalts God for this. Exaltation, you know what that means? It means to make something smaller, larger. Something that appears small in the distance, bigger, like telescopes. Magnify, exalt, so we can see how grand something really is. That's Mary. She's the telescope now. Mary heard God's promises. She struggled through it. She acted on God's promises. She looked back at God's faithfulness so she can look forward to the fulfillment. You know what Mary does? She stays with Elizabeth for the last three months of her delivery through her pregnancy. Mary gets to see the birth of John the Baptist, the man who would one day say, Jesus is more worthy than me. I must decrease so Jesus can increase. He tells Jesus, "Who are, you are my Lord. How can I baptize you? And eventually, the same baby who would one day be beheaded, that's the power of God's promises. I got goosebumps. I don't know about you. Can you imagine these two moms? This is our pattern this Advent. You are going to be perplexed by what God says. You are going to be perplexed at what God is calling you to do. Don't back away from it. Look back, struggle through it, look forward. You will be perplexed by your circumstances. So look to Mary. Look to Elizabeth. Look to what God has already done for them. And you also need to look back at what God has already done for you. Look back at God's faithfulness. God breathes life into a barren woman. God creates life in a virgin womb. And he conquers sin and death on the cross. Nothing is impossible with God. So what is going on today? I mean, he creates the world through speaking, parts the waters of the, of the sea. He walks on water. Barren women giving birth, virgin woman giving birth. What is going on today that you are thinking is too impossible for God? What's going on today, Heritage? God breathed new life into a barren woman and caused a virgin to give birth. As we begin to close, let's think for a moment. What if Mary and Elizabeth were sisters at Heritage, one of our sisters? And after service today, the benediction prayer, and y'all are released, you know how we linger after service when you get to talking? And you tell Mary and Elizabeth, I'm struggling this Christmas with this and this and this. I just, I can't believe how God can, can show up this time. Can you imagine what Mary would say? 
Can't you imagine what Elizabeth would say? Like, brother, sister, I was old. I was barren. I gave birth. Mary would be like, I was in the betrothal year. Joseph and I were not intimate, and I became pregnant. Right? <laughs> They'd say, look at me. Look back to how God has provided for me. He will provide for you. This means that the fulfillment of all of God's promises are wrapped up in this baby boy. In Jesus hinges all of God's promises for us. So I want to leave you with a promise that I think helps kind of pivot or hinge and swing all the other promises. It comes from Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, his second, actually his third letter to him, but second one in our Bible. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, he writes, as many as are the promises of God. 10,000? A million promises? In him, in Jesus, they are yes. Therefore, also through Jesus, is our amen to the glory of God through us. And you may not know this, or you may need to be refreshed, but the Greek word umen just means true. Like literally when we say amen in a moment, we're just saying true to this prayer. All of God's promises are true in Jesus. But the question is, are you in Jesus? That is the most important task for you this Christmas. Are you in Jesus? Because if you are in Jesus, you're not in this game for yourself. You're not building your kingdom, your house. If you're in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen for you. This Advent, rely on God's promises by remembering and looking back to God's past faithfulness. And this will lead you to find joy, not in humanity, not in presence, not in eggnog. I love eggnog. I love it. But the best gift, the best drink, the water of life, the son of Eve, the son of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the son of Judah, the son of David, the son of Mary, our Emmanuel. And that is God's word on this third Sunday of Advent.